So how many of you have noticed that our society celebrates the ability to be offended? Like, it, it has become a badge of honor to be able to look at a situation and find a way to be offended by it. In fact, we have an entire culture going on where we're, we're looking at things that happened in the past and saying, you know, it didn't upset us when it happened, but maybe, maybe there was something we should have been upset about. And so let's draw attention to it and then we'll cancel it. Let's be offended. And uh, I, uh, my favorite fruit happens to be mangoes. And I saw something written on the internet about it and I thought, this is so perfect. Um, someone said, this is how social media or our society currently works. Someone says, I prefer mangoes over oranges. And then the response they get is, so, basically what you're saying is that you hate oranges and you don't even mention pineapples, bananas, or grapefruit. You are so narrow-minded, you should educate yourself. I am literally shaking. Why? Because I said I prefer mangoes over oranges, and someone looked at that and said, hey, I'm going to find a way to look at this in, in a light that is as negative as possible. Now, I love to rhyme. I like Dr. Seuss. How many of you saw all the hubbub about Dr. Seuss right now? So here we have, if you are not following, Dr. Seuss, famous children's author, author of the book, The Sneetches. Now, the Sneetches book is probably one of the most timeless anti-racist stories um, of all time. He wrote this story about a group of, of creatures. Some had stars on theirs, others did not, and how they thought that that made them better than the others and how they kept going back and forth trying to put stars on and then take the stars off. And, and what he basically pointed out is your value doesn't come from your appearance. And he does an amazing job of telling a story that for decades and decades has been one of the highlights of icons for anti-racism. But apparently, when he drew pictures in some of his other stories and tried to draw pictures of people from different parts of the world, he used too many stereotypes. And when he drew a Chinese person, their eyes were slanted. He gave them a traditional hat. He used some traditional things. And now our society is going back to the person who they celebrated as being not racist, labeling him as racist. And the publishing company said, we won't, make, we won't sell those books anymore. And people are recognizing. The reason that this one is, is, is getting so much attention is because most people are scratching their head and saying, wait a minute, this is somebody we recognize from the context of their life had a very positive message regarding this, but now we're, we're canceling them over this? What is this? Why is it that the society is so excited and so celebratory about its ability to find offense? And then we want to look at this and say, okay, what does the scripture say about this behavior? What does the Bible say? Proverbs 19.11, a person's wisdom yields patience, 
It is one's glory to overlook an offense. Let's just read that again. A person's wisdom yields patience. The wiser you are, the more patient you are. And it is your glory to overlook an offense. Now, we've noticed that in today's society, we're, we're switching that. And we're giving awards to people for finding ways to be offended at things that nobody had noticed before. And, and, and we're, we're excited about that. And, and, and the, the society is doing everything it can to celebrate offense. But Bible says the exact opposite. It is says, if you have reason to be offended and choose not to, that is your glory. I was listening, one of the, sometimes when, when God puts a subject on my heart and I'm, I'm, I know what I'm going to be teaching on, I'll often look and I'll, I'll try to find other messages where people have taught on that topic. And I'll listen to a few different people. And, and you know, sometimes I, it's somebody I know and, and respect. Sometimes I'll find a random message out there and just, you know what, I'll listen and see if, if, if I don't find some inspiration or an additional perspective to to add to what I felt was on my heart. And it was interesting to me, as I, as I listened to different messages on offense, a lot of people talked about, you know, you shouldn't be offended because they might not have meant it that way. Don't jump to the conclusion that they were trying to upset you, trying to hurt you. And I thought, you know, there is value in that. Because we can, how many of you have ever misunderstood someone? All of us. In fact, if you didn't raise your hand, I guarantee you even with more certainty that you have missed, because we all do that. But I thought it was interesting. One, one of the messages I listened to in particular, I, as I got to the end, I, I thought, you know, they focused the whole time on what if that person didn't mean it. But what if they did? You know, there's, there's great value in in acknowledging our ability to misunderstand and to, to, to assume, you know what, I, I think that, that when, when that person, you know, when Dr. Seuss drew that picture, he was trying to create a microaggression against those people. Well, maybe he wasn't. But here's the point. When somebody says something, what if they were trying to be a little bit hurtful? What if they were being thoughtless and inconsiderate? Does that mean I do get to be offended? Does that mean, oh, I can? Not according to Scripture. The Scripture says when you overlook an offense, that is your glory. One of the things that we need to understand, and this is what our society has told us, they have said, if you aren't offended, if you don't react, you're weak. You're allowing someone to just trample over you. But is that what Scripture shows us? Remember, Jesus remained silent when he was before the Sanhedrin. Was, did he do that because of his weakness? Not at all. Not at all. 
And we, we talked recently about how disobedience is, uh, is a path to spiritual darkness. How Adam and Eve um, became like lost their clarity, their vision, the, the, the light of spiritual enlightenment when they chose to disobey. If you listen, previous weeks we talked about that. We were talking about spiritual maturity and how obedience is a big part of what spiritual maturity is. Um, when I went to Bible school, uh, the founder of our Bible school was Kenneth Hagin, and he said this. He said, one of the strongest indicators of spiritual maturity is being hard to offend. He said, when you see someone who is difficult to offend, who does not take offense easily, that person is likely spiritually mature. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 21 says, Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. Looks like he was doing that on purpose. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Wow. This verse isn't talking about, well, maybe they didn't mean it. Maybe that wasn't intentional. No, he says, in your heart, when you see, you will hear. It's going to happen. Eventually, someone is going to curse you. But if you're mature, when you see that, you're going to recognize, you know what, I've made that mistake before. Maybe not the exact scenario, but, but I have done that too. We talk about the mark of maturity is being slow to take offense, not being whiny. When we think about a baby, what does a baby do? They cry about everything. I'm hungry. But as they mature, they don't voice their thoughts and cry about every little thing. Spiritually, it's a similar thing. We are called to not be hyper-reactive. Have we ever noticed that people tend to be offended by the very things that they do? It's the very weaknesses that they have that often they are offended by when they see them in others. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 5 says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We have, we have this tendency. It is, it is a psychological phenomenon. If you have an issue that you're insecure about, that you recognize is in your own life, you tend to see it everywhere else. How many of you have ever bought a car? Now, 
sometimes you buy the car you always wanted. You know, it's like, oh man, ever since I was, you know, a little kid, I've always been dreaming about, and I love, you know, whatever it is, Ford Mustang. So you, everywhere you see them, you look for them. But oftentimes, if you're more like me, it's kind of like, all right, this is my budget, and this is my needs. I'm going to go see what I can get a good deal on. I remember one of my first cars was a Saturn sedan. I had never looked at Saturn sedans, never thought about Saturn sedans, nothing, until I got to this auction and there was a really good deal on a Saturn sedan. I, don't, I honestly don't think I'd ever noticed one until I bought one. And then I noticed every single one, every one of them that's out there. You know, if, if same, same thing with, with us. When we have something, when there is something that personally affects us, suddenly we see it everywhere else. What is it that causes us to be easily offended? One of the things is it's an issue we're already dealing with. And for that reason, offended people are often offended about the most hypocritical things. Why? Because it's already on their radar. Also, offended people aren't trusting God. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So, he says this. He says, when someone does you evil, don't repay evil with evil, but leave room for God's wrath. See, we have this tendency to think we need to write everything. If I don't do something, it'll be out of balance. Now, there's a show from, I don't even know what it is, the 90s. How many of you have ever seen or heard the, the, the detective program Monk? Okay, so if you're unfamiliar with this, Monk is a story about a detective who has like an obsessive compulsive problem. He's extremely observant. He sees everything. He solves all these crimes, but he can't stand it when things are out of place. So every episode is full of comic moments when he walks into a murder scene and he's supposed to not touch anything, but the flowers aren't even. And so he's like compelled. It's just like his issue doesn't allow him to just see imbalance and do nothing. So he's over there trying to trim the, the flowers so that they're all the same length. Or, or the murderer knocked over one lamp and there's another lamp still knocked up, you know, standing up straight. So he either wants to lift the one and, or knock down the other, but they've got to be even. And, and he has these compulsions. And, and, and he's trying to have a conversation with someone and one of the, the vertical or the horizontal blinds is like tweaked. And he's just like, 
can't finish the conversation because he needs to go balance that. How many of you ever seen anybody who just has like a compulsion to find balance? Many of us, we treat life that way. And his, we, his, when we see that, when we watch that in the television show, we recognize that as a dysfunction. We just say, you know, I mean, balance is nice, but you just got to be able to sit back and let things be out of balance. Trust that it's not your responsibility to correct everything. Because if you go through life acting like it is your responsibility to correct every imbalance, then you're just like that dysfunctional OCD, that's the third, OCD fella who just everywhere he looks, he just sees imbalance and he thinks it's his responsibility to fix it. Let me just say something. Balancing the world is not our responsibility. When we recognize that someone can be stupid and we don't have to step up and correct them, boy, is that a weight off our shoulders. You know, we can watch that television show and we see this, this character with OCD and, and, and it's mildly amusing, and we think, you know, it would be, I'm sure it would be such a relief for him to realize he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to walk and avoid every crack on the pavement. He doesn't have to, to, to fix every frame that's off-center. But then we turn around and we walk through our lives, and every time someone says something or does something wrong, we think, it's my responsibility to fix that. I need to make sure that they know how offensive and inappropriate and, and wrong, and I have to bring balance. God says, no. Let me bring balance. It's not our responsibility. He says this. He says, what is your responsibility? Let's go back. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. So balancing it out. You know what? He said something hurtful. I need to say something hurtful to him and balance it out. No, God says, do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible. So here's the responsibility. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, but my dear friends, leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, says the Lord. As much as it depends on you. Here's a, here's a little litmus test. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, and then you find yourself right next to them at the stoplight. They did wrong. Do we have to balance it out? Is, if, if that driver, we won't even assign them a gender or anything. If that driver who cut you off, who did you wrong, continues on their day without any sign from you of how bad they are at driving, Will they be okay? Or are we kind of like that OCD detective there who's just totally focused on, it's out, it's out of balance. I got to do something. I don't trust that God can handle that on my own. God's just going to leave it out of whack. I got to get in there and make sure that person knows how wrong they were. 
I think I shared this story here before. I don't, I'm not sure, but I, I distinctly remember uh, one time when I was a teenager and I was, I was driving my parents' car and I, I'm assuming I was probably a new driver, so I probably did something wrong. And I had this guy so mad at me. He's driving behind. He's honking. He's giving hand gestures and, and everything. And, and I pulled in to the church, which was where I was headed that time, and pulled into my parking spot. And he runs up behind, parks right behind me, and jumps out of his car and just starts yelling and screaming at me about how bad I had, you know. Again, I don't remember to this day exactly what I had done. Apparently, I had cut him off or done something wrong, turned from the wrong lane, or I don't remember what it was. But he just, Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And he was going off about how bad, and I told him, I will thank you. You know, he's like, you could have been in an accident. Well, thank you for not hitting me. So sorry. And I just remember just staying calm. And he, ah, he shouts, and then like, he just like ran out of things to say. And I wasn't arguing with him. It's just, you know what? Sorry. Try to do better next time. But you don't. Have a nice day. He just goes. Because a soft answer turns away wrath. Psalms 37, 7 through 9 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways. It's like God knows what it's like to be a human. When we see someone succeeding at something and they shouldn't have, how many of you will admit that that's irritating? I, I find it irritating. You mean you cut me off and now you're in front of me? You know, you did this and, it, and, it's, and it's succeeding for you? He says, do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their evil schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Again, God is saying, I recognize that tendency you have to try to make things even. But don't fret. Don't fret. And then he says something we need to, we need to believe. Because if you don't understand and believe this, then you're going to keep thinking that there's a benefit to you personally going out there and trying to right every wrong fretting about it. He says, do not fret. Others say worry. It leads sometimes to evil, occasionally to evil. It could possibly lead to evil. No, that's not what it says. It says, do not fret. It leads, say it loud, only to evil. Only. As in each and every time this is the only place that it leads to. 
When, when we obsess, when we take on that responsibility for balancing, and then he goes on to remind us why we don't need to be the one who worries about it. He says, for those who are evil will be destroyed. We're so, like, myopic. We, we have such a short perspective of the situation. We think that the person who cut us off is winning at life because they're two cars ahead of us on the highway. Not realizing that that, that God is there. He says, I will repay. Those who are evil will be destroyed. They will pay. It's just not this instant. You have to trust that it's not your responsibility to even everything out. Let God handle it. In the end, either, I shouldn't say either, in the end it will be balanced out, period. Period. Now, how that is balanced out, does that person pay, or do they end up putting their trust in God and he pays for their wrong? Kind of like he paid for your wrong, and you aren't going to pay the full price for your mistakes because Jesus took some of that, but you want to be the only one who benefits from his forgiveness and not them? When we say, I got to make sure that they pay. What we're saying is, I don't want them to have the mercy that I got. I feel like I'm the only one who should be allowed to, to experience release from guilt. Do we believe that God will handle it? Can we see imbalance and then just trust God, you will take care of that. I don't have to carry that burden of ensuring that that person who did something that was out of line gets what they deserve. See, offense blinds us to our own issues. Proverbs 18, 19 says, A brother wronged is more unyielding than a fortified city. Disputes are like a barred gates of a citadel. When someone is offended, they stop being reasonable. And that includes, say, that includes me. Oh, no, I'm that one person who when I'm upset, I'm totally reasonable. Because every time I'm upset, like, I'm totally got a reason for it. That's what we think. But this verse tells us, he says, a brother, it doesn't say, you know, an enemy. It says a brother. Like, this is a good person. He's on our team. He's in our family. A brother wronged is more unyielding than a fortified city. When we are focused on what, we have, what has been done wrong to us, we become unyielding and unreasonable. Think about this for a second. They are wrong is not a valid argument. 
because you could be wrong too. Do you realize that just because they're wrong doesn't mean you're right? And almost all of us tend to forget that little reality. And when we recognize they're wrong, it's like, oh, great. If they're wrong, I'm right. And you can see this with kids. Somebody comes showing up and they've got like, you know, a black eye. Like, what happened? Well, my brother punched me. Well, you go to him. And he's like, but dad, he did this. So like, of course I punched him. Right? He was wrong, so then... I, I just... I got... Don't I get to do wrong if they did wrong? Doesn't them being wrong make me right? How many of you parents have had to deal with that? And you're like, no. That's not how it works. Just because they're wrong doesn't mean you are right in however you respond to their wrong. And then we turn around and we get offended and we start talking bad about the person at work, at the boss, and the, the spouse, or the, whoever it is. We're talking bad, and we're, but, but they were wrong. And we do the exact same thing. We think that being right is somehow, if I'm right about one part, I'm right about it all. Somebody said, being right is a dangerous place. Because when we think we are right, we stop evaluating the rest of the situation. How many times have we said something like, oh, they hurt my feelings, so I can say a bunch of things that hurt theirs. But they're the ones who's in the wrong. Not me, because they started it, because they were the first one to be out of balance, and therefore, all I'm doing is just bringing things back to balance. No. No, offense, taking offense, blinds us to our own issues. When I am offended, my focus goes on them, comes off of myself, and offended people tend to be the most blind. And it's so often. I mean, I, I don't even need to give examples because all I have to do is just say to you, think about somebody who hurts others because they were hurt. We all know it. It is so common. Another issue with taking offense, is that offense destroys unity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2 through 3 says this, Be completely humble, gentle, and patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We are called, you and I, to purposely pursue peace and unity. John 13, 35 says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples. How many of you remember how this verse finishes? By this you will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
See, unity and the ability to be at peace with each other is what God says will set us apart from others. Our distinguishing characteristic as Christians is supposed to be how good we are at staying unified. Now, is that because we never do anything to upset each other? Or is it because as Christians, when the inevitable opportunities for offense come, we turn them down? There might be a verse that says something about turning the other cheek. We are called to strive for unity. This is our identifying characteristic. The Bible says in Matthew 5.13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. What is saltiness? Saltiness is what makes the salt stand out from the food around it. It's the flavor. It's the difference. And this scripture says, but when the salt isn't any different than the food that it's on, what good is it? What is the difference that's supposed to stand out with you and I? You and I are supposed to pursue unity. We're supposed to be hard to offend. When we are in a situation and we have the opportunity to take offense, our saltiness, our flavor, what makes us stand out as Christians is our ability to not take offense. And like I said, even if they meant it, First of all, let me predict something. If, if you and I go out into our lives and we begin to intentionally not take offense, the first thing we're going to realize is, you know what? A lot of times that I was getting offended, they didn't even mean to do that. I was finding flaws where there were no flaws. I was... I was canceling people in my life for intentions they never even had. You're going to find that that's common. But you're also going to find there are people who genuinely tried to do something mean. They genuinely said something insincere or in, uh, in unthought, uh, disrespectful, thoughtless, hurtful, harsh. You know, that's so accurate that hurting people hurt people. When someone is offended and they're already offended and they're, hurt, they're going around, they just lash out. There's going to be both. And, and listen to this. Romans chapter 14, verse 19 through 20. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. I promise I'm not reading the same verse over and over again. This is just repeat. Re reappearing so many times in Scripture, it sounds like I just went and found the same verse over and over. It says, Therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. A few months back, we talked a lot about this Scripture in Romans 14 and how at that time, the issue that was dividing people 
had to do with what they could eat and couldn't eat, what rules they should and shouldn't follow. And he said, all food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. And then he says, this whopper of a verse right here. So whatever you believe about these things, keep that between yourself and God. What? I mean, you mean I know something and I don't tell everybody? And when someone doesn't know what I know, I don't go smack them with it? Because I have truth that needs to be out there. And he says, no. He says, we are called to champion unity even at our own personal cost. He says, there is more value in unity than smacking someone with the truth. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. He says, let, I, just, I just want to read that one over again. Let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And we talked about this a few months back when we said, we're not going to destroy the work of God for the sake of masks. We're not going to destroy the work of God for the sake of politics. We're not going to destroy the work of God for the sake of, insert, any current issue there. He says, all food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. He says, you know what? You can eat anything you want. You can, you can have that meat. But if you make an issue of it, and div cause division and confuse somebody and cause them to violate their conscience because they didn't understand. You were better off just avoiding the meat. We, we used the example, how many of you remember? I, have, I know you remember because so many people have brought this up to me again. How many of you remember the zipper merge? No, not many. I, we shared, my, my wife and I were up here a few months back and we shared about the zipper merge. Legally, there is a right way to zipper merge. And you can Google it, look it up. You're supposed to wait to the last minute. How many of you dislike those who wait to the last minute? There's a lot of you guys out there. I prefer to wait to the last minute because it's the right way to do it. But I have to be careful. I have to recognize that getting those extra five spaces the right way isn't worth offending those extra five cars by doing it the right way. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3 says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. You have a ministry. I want you to understand. Say this with me. I have a ministry. 
I think it's funny sometimes how ministries are often named after the person. You know, it's like Kenneth Hagin Ministries. And, and, and when you, they're a famous person and it says ministries at the end, it's kind of normal. But when it's like a name you never heard of, how many have ever kind of giggled inside when you read things? It's like Bob Smith Ministries. I want you to say this with me. Whatever your name is, then say ministries. Ready? Joshua Vanical Clock Ministries. You? Say it. You have your own name. You are a ministry. I want you to understand something. You represent God to the world. There are so many people who will not go to church. They will not judge Christianity by my behavior. They judge it by yours. You can't hire me to be a Christian for you. I don't represent Christ for you. My job is to help you represent Christ for Christ in all the people's lives who are around you. Leviticus 19, 18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You know, our tendency is that we judge other people by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions. I'm going to say that again. We judge other people by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions. That doesn't work. The Bible says that we are to treat others as we treat ourselves. So what does that mean? That means you need to treat others by their intentions, not just their actions. When you see actions that are questionable, you need to intentionally seek, okay, maybe, what could that have possibly been done innocently? I have friends who make fun of me because I do this so regularly. They're like, oh, Josh, how can you find a positive way that they could have possibly done that? You know, I'm like, well, you know, maybe... Maybe this, that, and the next thing. You know, that they're like, that's, that's not very probable. And I have to say, you know what? I'd rather be wrong than take offense. I'd rather give them the benefit of the doubt. If it was me, I would want someone to give me the benefit of the doubt. I wouldn't be doing, hurting them on purpose. Matthew 5, 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What is he talking about again? That imbalance that seems to irritate us so much. He says, hey, he's the one who gives sunshine to both the good and the bad. The rain falls on the good man's crops and it waters the bad man's crops. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? They were the most wicked, deceitful, crooked people of the day. He says, don't they even love those who love them? 
And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than anyone else? How salty. You know what I'm saying? It's like, what, what makes you any different than the world if that's the way you're acting? Don't even pagans do that, but be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He says, I challenge you. I challenge you. Be slow to anger. Recognize your role. Do not celebrate offense. We as Christians should not be perpetuating this cancel culture that's becoming so powerful in our society. Not because they never get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong. Sometimes they get it right. But even when they get it right, it is not our place to be back there just saying, all right, let's just be offended. No, God says, leave it to me. I will balance things out. And you know, when we learn to just let that go and trust that God will balance it out, I look at that and I think, we're all just like monk with this compulsion to try to even things out that is messing up our lives in more ways than we realize because we put so much value on getting things even. And God says, let it go. Let it go. I'll take care of it. Trust me that in the end, I will make sure that those who have done wrong pay for it or it's paid for. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you. I thank you that you have shown us in your word how to live and that when you, we follow your instruction, it benefits us. I just thank you that you are reaching into our lives. I pray that you will remind each and every one of us ways that we can apply this. Lord, if we have chosen to take offense, Lord, I pray that you will bring that to our remembrance, that you will show us these areas where we have made a habit of being offended. And I pray that you would remind us in those moments and we would choose to let it go and to trust you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, we said something so important, and that was either they pay or it's paid for. This is what I'm talking about. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve spiritual death, separation from God. We have all disobeyed one way or the other. We all have. And the Bible says that Jesus came. He didn't sin, not even once. So that he could take the death that we deserved, the punishment we deserved, for us. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that if you believe in your heart Jesus died on the cross and confess with your mouth that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. What does that mean? Saved from what? Saved from the sin that had you separated from God. The Bible says that when we believe and confess, we're forgiven, and that sin is no longer held against us. God forgives us. He pays for it. All sin will be paid for by either us or by him. 
And if you say, man, I know there's sin in my life, I don't know that it's paid for. I want to give you that opportunity to know today. We're going to do what it says in Romans 10, 9, and 10. With every eye closed just for a moment so nobody's embarrassed. If there's anyone here who says, that's me, I need to ask for that forgiveness. Just raise your hand right now and we'll pray together. I see one hand. I see a couple of hands. And I also know that there could be people watching online who may have raised their hand in the living room or wished that they could. Let's pray together, all of us, just like that scripture says, and God promises that our sins will be forgiven. Let's do that. Dear Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I thank you for that forgiveness. I recognize that you rose from the dead. I choose to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.